Welcome to episode 454 of the Cyberlaw Podcast. We are lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. And the usual disclaimer, the views expressed here do not reflect the opinions of our institutions, firms, clients, friends, family, or pets. If you don't like what you hear or disagree, blame us and only us. Joining me today for the News Roundup, Jay Healy, Senior Research Scholar at Columbia University's School for International and Public Affairs and Fellow for the Atlantic Council's Cyber Statecraft Initiative. Nick Weaver, researcher at the International Computer Science Institute and chief mad scientist at Scary Technologies, and Maury Schenk, London-based lawyer and technologist. And I am Brian Fleming, formerly of the National Security Division at DOJ and current Steptoe & Johnson National Security Partner and the guest host of today's program while Stuart Baker is away gallivanting around the RSA conference in California. And in light of that, we did consider, I will tell you, whether we wanted to have a chatbot version of Stuart hosting the program today, but ultimately we decided that would be terrifying, so we did not do that. But we are going to start with a series of stories focused on AI and related technologies. And to get us started off, let me throw it to Maury, who's going to talk about a fascinating article that just popped up a few days ago in the New York Times relating to Google and what they are doing about their now perceived perhaps deficiencies in the search engine category in light of chat GPT and some competitors. So Maury, let me send it over to you. Yeah, well, the New York Times is effectively reporting that Google has an internal project to come up with lots of clever AI inventions to deal with the threat from chat GPT. I think it's not a huge surprise to anybody. I think the more interesting story is the backstory that Google had this technology first. I mean, Google developed transformers, which are the key technology underlying LLMs. They had the first really powerful LLM, BERT, in 2018. And they've had these chat technologies for a long time, but their internal AI people told them correctly that these things aren't perfect. They spout a lot of inaccurate information, as people have been pointing out, and they weren't prepared to take the risk. OpenAI was with ChatGPT, augmented by reinforcement learning with human feedback, which is an, a new guardrails technology. And they've got Google scared, although Google's share price is bouncing back. I think people are realizing the panic wasn't quite as bad as they might have thought initially, but Google is experimenting with ways to beat back the ChatGPT OpenAI challenge. Yeah, I'll just add on that, you know, obviously a couple of points that were really highlighted in this story are just the potential commercial impact here. And obviously there's a discussion about the contract and the arrangement with Samsung. There's a, some looking forward to the arrangement with Apple and sort of what the bottom line impact would be for Google on that. Those are obviously big markers. And maybe this is ultimately going to be much ado about nothing from a commercial standpoint for Google. But you know, nevertheless, I think those are obviously things to watch and there'll be a lot more ink spilled on this topic, you know, from that perspective, if things perhaps go in, in sort of surprising directions. Those are important points. I mean, it's all about search market share and those Samsung and Apple contracts are a huge piece of their search market share. I don't know which way it's going to come out commercially. I think, look, OpenAI can't stand up a search engine that's going to be anywhere near as good as Google's in reasonable time. There's a tremendous amount of work that goes into that. But this stuff hits the bottom line. It hits market share. It's expensive to run the AI queries that do this stuff, as OpenAI is experiencing and needed the investment from Microsoft. So it's a problem for Google, for sure. Yeah. So so with that, let's actually, that's a good place to pivot to news item number two, which is based largely on a a pretty comprehensive piece that came out in the Washington Post last week based on some other research that we'll get into, but it really digs in to the kind of data sources that feed into these tools and perhaps the flaws that are inherent in the way that this data is aggregated and and searched and, and used. So maybe, Nick, let me throw it to you to maybe start on this and then I'm sure others are going to want to weigh in on this one. This was a Washington Post analysis of the C4 data set from Google, which is notably supposed to be clean. So it's vetted for not training on Nazis, because let's face it, there's a lot of Nazis on the internet, but it's bad PR to train on them. And also crawled that it was basically 
go over the, the web. Now, what the Washington Post did that's very useful is actually make a search engine so that you could actually put in names and see what the sources are. The problem is that it quickly turns out is not only do you have things like the Daily Stormer and the Vanguard News Network in there or Bare Naked Islam, but you also have conspiracies, anti-vaccination stuff, all sorts of stuff like that that are the result of it being an unsupervised crawl. And if you want to train AIs in a notion where they're supposed to encapsulate knowledge, you need domain knowledge in vetting the training because a anti-vax site like Natural News versus, say, the Mayo Clinic, those should have different weights in the training set. But the only way you know that is to have domain experts in the training. The problem is that costs money. And if you want 15 million websites, you're going to get garbage. I do like the hack that the journalists did to backtrace where this information came from. I thought that was a really interesting part of the story, that it's not a full black box, right? You can go back and with some tools and brains, figure out where this information came from to do this analysis. Yeah, and, and that's largely because it's basically the internal representation of these large language models is a compressed output, a lossy compression of the training data, that it's basically... The goal is to compress the training data. And so as a consequence, you can try to extract information from it that way. Fascinating. So I, I think there is a response to this article, though. The Washington Post has done a survey, and we don't want Nazi misinformation spread around the world. But this information is out there. And there are two responses I would make. One, there are ways to deal with this aside from experts looking at the training data. The best innovation that we've seen recently is what OpenAI has done with reinforcement learning with human feedback to try to put guardrails on these things. And they made massive progress on that from 3.5 to GPT 3.5 to GPT 4. It's not perfect. There are serious problems that we have to have a societal conversation about. The second point is these decisions about what to train on are, are political. And maybe most people would agree with Nazi misinformation, but you get into Trump versus Biden or, you know, it wasn't so long ago when we were deplatforming people for saying that COVID was a lab leak and now the U.S. government is supporting this. So I don't think these are easy decisions to make with experts. And it is problematic to have misinformation at scale, but there's misinformation anyhow, and we have to figure out how to deal with it, not just by shutting down what is being looked at. To pick up on the conversation from last Monday on a similar topic, Nick and Maury, do you think the market's going in that direction, that it's going to lead, that the market is going to be demanding more quality information in this, in which case the government doesn't have to do much, or is it likely to go off the rails and, and maybe we do need more regulation? I think it depends on what this ends up being used for, that I'm not sure that regulation is necessary because I think this is a overhyped technology that's already hitting the iceberg of reality, that this is a sounds-like machine, not a knowledge machine. And when people keep trying to use it as a knowledge machine, they're running into problems. On this, I agree with Nick. I mean, we're farther up the hype, hype cycle than I would have imagined possible and I think the market will sort out what is quality at some point, although I also think that some kind of regulation will turn out to be needed. That's a perfect segue to our next topic, which is regulation coming from our friends in the EU. A really interesting piece last week in the MIT Tech Review that talks about, again, in terms of hitting the iceberg, some of the issues that this technology is already running into in the EU, where there are a number of investigations going on in different jurisdictions where Italy has said, we're going to completely take ChatGPT off the board for the time being, unless we can get assurances that this is going to be compliant with GDPR. So Maury, let me turn to you on this one. How do you see the EU reaction just generally, but also what do you see as the broader implications of this and whether this could feed into some of the things we were just talking about? 
Well, the EU reaction, it's a straight legal issue. So under GDPR, you're not automatically allowed to process data because it's public. That can be a violation of GDPR. You need a proper basis for processing. Most lawyers would have thought, well, you can get consent and they're clearly open AI can't get consent from everybody for crawling their public data. The basis that people would usually rely on is what's called legitimate interests. If you have legitimate interests for processing the data, and clearly OpenAI does have legitimate interests in providing a useful service like ChatGPT, even if it has some problems, but those legitimate interests have to not be outweighed by the rights of the data subjects. Now, I would argue that they're not in this case because the information was already public and it's just kind of crammed into this compressed representation that Nick described rather than being actually duplicated in ChatGPT, although some of it can come back out. And I would have thought before the Garante decision in Italy, that's a straightforward conclusion, but it seems not to be. And data protection authorities can be a lot more aggressive about these things. So it's going to come down to how tough data protection authorities want to be. And yeah, it does link in tightly to some of the points Nick made before about quality of data and so forth. I'd also like to add that in some ways, this is a consequence of the model of modern AI research, which is hoover up all the data possible and then go with it. Because the assumption is the more data you have, the better. But this is starting to bite them in multiple ways. Not only do you have the regulators coming in, you have serious copyright concerns because you can, for example, out of the image uh, networks, extract the Getty logo from all the watermarks it sees. And there's another problem that's going on the horizon is that a lot of the data that they're trading on is output of AI data because so much of the crud on the internet is now generated by these techniques and it's been previously generated by passing a phrase through Google Translate and back and stuff like that. And so one thing they're starting to run into is Habsburg AI syndrome, where it's just too inbred and it suffers from hemophilia. I agree, Nick. And I mean, even Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, has recently said, we're not going to keep being able to make progress on this just by scaling the data, including because we're running out of data. Like you said, it's being recycled. The clean human-produced data in the world, we've already used most of it for the latest models. And then you start moving on to crud, like just crappy Twitter conversations and stuff like that, which are problematic. <laughs> which are also going to be cut off from circulation by Mr. Musk, if he has anything to say <laughs> about it. I would also add to that point, I think at the tail end of the MIT article, there was a you know, I think a quote from, I can't recall from whom, but it basically just saying, you know, to date, everything is about the model and nobody really cares about the data because it's just about how much data. And it's, it seems now that very quickly we're coming to a, a place where there may be an inflection point in the data now so that we avoid this garbage in, garbage out kind of problem is going to become just far more central to the whole, the whole enterprise. So we the shall see. The way I've heard it phrased is we need low background training data. So there's this notion, if you're building something that's very radiation sensitive, you need low background steel. That is steel salvaged from World War II era and older warships, because that's the only thing that hasn't been contaminated by above ground nuclear testing. We need the same thing on our training data for our machine learning systems, and that's going to get expensive. Yes, and quickly. So interesting sort of confluence of factors from our friends in the EU. So we'll see how that plays out. And to Maury's point, I think what's going on in Italy and some of the other jurisdictions, we'll see how that all progresses in the next, you know, few months as there there might be some developments that kind of, you know, perhaps accelerate things on these fronts. Brian, I have yeah. to say the at the head, you joked about having a chat bot, Stuart Baker. And the wicked part of me has to say, since he's not here, I wonder how much you could train a chat bot, Stuart Baker, 
by just saying those damn Europeans with their wacky regulations and <laughs> we need to control the California, these platform companies and don't do anything that gets in the way of law enforcement. And enough, enough with wokeness. Don't forget, you got to yeah. include wokeness <laughs> I, in that. I think we could sum up pretty well with that training set. <laughs> okay. Well, there is a data set out there that would get you there. I think that's right. But we'll leave that for another day. So with that, let's turn away from AI and chatbots for a moment. And Jay, turning it over to you, maybe as a bit of a palate cleanser here, just some to turn to, as you've noted, anniversaries and milestones and sort of the history of cyber warfare and cyber operations. And so just to maybe turn to you to of some things you've been thinking about and reflecting on recently. Well, and it does get us to regulation because one of the things I did 10 years ago is I came up with the first history book of cyber conflict and we're updating that. And it really strikes me in looking at the history and how far back these problems go. And it probably makes me a little more radical in my policy, in the way I think about policy than I might otherwise be. Right. Late last year, we had the, the anniversary of the first time that I can find in print that we said we need to bake security in, not bolt it on. It wasn't the same quote, but that's what it was saying. And that quote was from 1972. Right. So think about that when, for example, we're talking now about software liability. Right. We've known this has been an issue, not for five years or 25 years, but over 50 years. And I think that changes the way that we might want to think about this. Also, when it comes to cyber law, right, we just hit the 15th anniversary, or we're coming up next month on the 15th anniversary of PDD 63, Presidential Decision Directive 63, which is the first real White House document on cyber and, infra and infrastructure security. And it had a quote that, you know, we're going to let the market work. You know, we're only going to do regulation if there, is a, if there is a sign of market failures and that market forces don't work. And so 25 years on. 25 years on, 1998. So again, there's an argument that, boy, we've been waiting for the markets to work for 25 years. It doesn't seem to deliver. So I can understand pushing more for software liability or other regulations than I might have any otherwise. Yeah, I will say that some of the sort of high-level observations and you know the thesis of your you know from your book, I think you're absolutely right that it does seem to pull through even to today. I think both for being predictive and also perhaps for where we haven't been able to figure things out and attesting to the fact that another anniversary 10 years on from the Snowden leaks, having been there at the Justice Department when everybody was running around trying to right. put, the, put that fire out, I can, and now here we are, you know, 10 years later and what do we have? We have a different flavor of that, but with the, you know, the sort of Ukraine related leaks that have just been plaguing us here the last several months. And, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same, it seems in the space. So for whatever that's worth, I think that's, I think that is entirely fair. With that, Maury, I'm going to turn to you. A whole host of articles that appeared last week, kind of also sticking with some national security related aspects of online and cyber activity. And that's the series of complaints and charges and arrests that were announced by DOJ in largely focused in New York relating to a number of Chinese MPS officers and others th that were affiliated with them here in the States for a variety of conduct. This is a story we talked about. I was hosting a few months ago, and this came up with the police stations in Manhattan, and we talked about that a bit. So this is now coming back around and expanding quite a bit. So, you know, what do you have on that story, which I think is a fascinating one? Well, it's, it's you know, charges being announced. The largest group of charges, I think it was 44 people. These are all U.S. federal charges were against people in China and elsewhere in Asia who are engaged in harassment campaigns, I think largely cyber campaigns against overseas dissidents, people, anti-government people, including in the United States. The ones charged in that indictment are all at large. And then to the police station charge, they did in a separate indictment charge two people in New York and arrested them with operating what they've called a secret police station for the Chinese Ministry of Public Security. I'm trying to imagine what this secret police station is. I mean, did they haul people in there and pretend it was actually a Chinese police station? It sounds to me like it's U.S. government polemics that it's kind of the Chinese operating agents there and harassing people from there. But maybe it was more like a police station. Who knows? Certainly the U.S. government is, this is one important front in the U.S., 
let's call it conflict with China. Yeah, on the police station, it certainly sounds the way it's described and alleged and the way it's been reported is that it's a ba- it was sort of a base of operations to you know harass folks on the ground here in the United States that were viewed to be troublemakers back in Beijing, and that that's kind of the largely the basis of those charges, along with obstruction charges, because apparently these two individuals destroyed and deleted a number of text messages and chats that were on their devices after they found out they were under investigation by the FBI. But to circle back on the the 40 individuals who are abroad who, you know, are likely never going to be or very unlikely to ever be arrested and face charges here in the U.S., this is kind of your classic name and shame type activity by law enforcement to bring awareness to this, to hopefully have some deterrent effect, to potentially embarrass the Chinese government for having orchestrated something like this. You know, it is interesting from the point of view that, you know, it does seem to me that this is, and I think this was noted in one of the articles that this is, seems that this is very much out of the Russia playbook in terms of, you know, just having sort of like a very aggressive kind of troll warehouse of people who are just trolling dissidents and stirring up trouble in the States. And that seems to be what's going on here, as opposed to, you know, what the Chinese are typically doing, which is trying to exfiltrate valuable information and bring it back. So this is really just stirring up trouble, it seems, and targeting you know, those who've been identified as problems here in the U.S. So that's kind of an interesting phenomenon that this is, and obviously using social media to do that and creating fake social media accounts and going through all those types of steps that, again, we've seen Russia do for many years and other state actors do for many years. So I I did think that was notable. And again, I don't know that we're ever going to see much more of this beyond the two individuals who were arrested on the the foreign agent charges in connection with the Chinese police station, but still, I think, notable because I think we will likely see more of these types of cases in the future as this activity has now kind of been brought into the light and is now clearly an object of some investigative resources on the part of the U.S. I've been really impressed here at Columbia University about prior to the pandemic protests in the fall in China, as well as here on, in, at Columbia and other campuses, you'd see a substantial amount of material being posted about why the Chinese party was great and America was wrong on X, Y, and Z and China shouldn't get blamed for the pandemic X, Y, and Z, you know, whatever the topic was, several a week until those pandemic protests hit China and then around the United States. And since then, it's a substantial drop. You almost never see it anymore. And so it's interesting in tying in with that control of the Chinese Communist Party has their influence that they have through things like these stations. It certainly seems to have dropped off, at least on campus here. Two of your points, Brian, I like. I mean, the analogy to Russian tactics, I wonder whether we're going to see the Chinese start to do things like use nerve gas like, or nerve toxins <laughs> like the Russians do. We, we hope they won't. And who knows what we do as well. Yeah, but, um, amen, amen to that. Yeah. <laughs> but, and the name and shame point is interesting. I mean, in that respect, it's similar to sanctions. You know, we've got, we're using sanctions more aggressively against China, and it's a similar kind of effect. I mean, an indictment is a pretty tough tool, but similarly, I think it's the reputational effect that we're trying to have. Yeah. And I think what's been shown over time is that even, you know, even when, DOJ gets criticized for bringing these types of cases, which again, dates back to my time there, you know, a number of years ago now. I do think there is a level of embarrassment that is that the Chinese government never wants to have to deal with and that they're obviously issuing sort of blanket denials all over the place. This is all ginned up and political and unfair and inappropriate, et cetera, et cetera. And also, obviously, by doing this, you sort of bring these tactics to light they can change up, they can do other things. But at the same time, I think there's an undeniable value in sort of bringing these things to the light and sort of putting them out there. And if nothing else, making the American public aware of this in addition to sort of sending a single signal to Beijing as well. So so yeah, so, so we shall see what comes of that. But a lot of activity on that front just last week. Sticking with enforcement for a moment and going to one of Nick's favorite topics, which is, which is crypto, SEC announced that they were filing a complaint against Bitrex last week for failing to register as a an exchange, a broker, and a clearing agency. And 
this is a fascinating one and obviously not the first time that Bitrex has been in the news with its regulatory troubles of late. But Nick, other than getting up and doing a happy dance to celebrate the announcement here, what what are your thoughts on this story? What this may foretell for what's coming in this space? So to start with, the cryptocurrency community has always asked for regulatory clarity. Basically, the only advantage the cryptocurrencies really have is criming and avoiding regulation. And the regulations have been clear for decades now. It's just there's been a lack of regulatory enforcement. This is changing. So there was the Treasury report recently, which if you haven't read, it's very clear that they see through the garbage that the cryptocurrency promoters put forth. And this is another case that so many of the cryptocurrencies don't just nuzzle up to the Howey test line of is this a security. They go over the other side, they're dancing and waving and the like going, I'm an unregistered security. Now the Bitrex basically about a month ago decided to abandon the US under the realization that this was coming down the pipe. And Bitrex is a second-tier exchange and critically not publicly owned. So the SEC is able to go after them without any collateral damage at all. And the civil complaint makes two very interesting focuses. The first is on the tokens themselves that Bitrex listed that are so obviously and blatantly unregistered securities. And Bitrex's activity to try to get some of these tokens to clean up their language a little bit so that it isn't quite so we're shooting off fireworks saying we're violating the Howey test. The interesting thing is half the cryptocurrencies mentioned are also listed on Coinbase. Coinbase Ventures has had a huge hand in a lot of the other listings and basically what this criminal, com- or sorry, civil complaint, I wish it was criminal, it's civil, is you could remove some things, change some things around, and file it against Coinbase today. So the real question I have on this is, what's Coinbase going to do about it now that the SEC has made clear that if you want to do the live-action role-playing of a stock exchange... You have to follow the rules of a stock exchange. Yeah, I think to respond to a couple of points that Nick brought up, I think the idea that there's a lot that was, I think there was a quote in there that says, look, for years we wanted to know what assets or securities and they wouldn't tell us. Well, that's, I mean, frankly, that's that falls a little flat to some degree because that's kind of a refrain that you hear time and again. And to Nick's point, I mean, I think if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, you know, I think you're that's sort of how you have to be thinking about these things from a regulatory risk perspective. And clearly they were content not to until they were sort of called to the carpet on this. And then the other is exactly the point Nick brought up too about sort of what the evidence that they appear to have that suggests that they were doing everything in their power to sort of obscure and obfuscate the fact that the these were going to be perceived to be securities and were counseling others to do the same, which is a surefire way to get the regulator upset with you if you're trying to get on that soapbox and get others to sort of get on board with this, with that approach. Go ahead, Nick. And one related thing is we found out on FTX with all their celebrity endorsements, they tried to recruit Taylor Swift and Taylor Swift refused in no small part because she asked, why aren't these things unregistered securities? Her dad was a stockbroker. I was going to say that's something that she she picked that up in her time as a day trader while during the pandemic. The other thing I was going to mention or the other thing to bring up too is that you know the idea that obviously Bitrex did announce not that long ago that they were going to abandon the US market. That's now become a very familiar refrain that we're hearing from other big players in this space. Nevertheless, there's a you know the Bitrex affiliate based in Germany, I believe, was also charged, was also part of this complaint and is also alleged to be, you know, liable here for this for similar reasons. You know, I think it, it is never as easy as one would hope to get out from under the shadow of US 
regulatory jurisdiction. And so the idea that you're just going to sort of drop the mic one day and say, we're out, US, sorry, you can't touch us anymore. It will be very interesting to see how that plays out if there's a procession of some of these players that are abandoning or trying to abandon at least the US market and how that plays out. I think that's one chapter, I think, in this whole saga that it's going to be very interesting to see how that works out over the next you know year or two, because I think that is going to be the initial move that a lot of these players are going to try, and we shall see how successful they are in that regard. Go ahead, Jack. Brian, for the non-lawyers, how normal is it for, in a civil case like this, for the regulators to apparently, according to Bitrex, refuse to say which of the violating securities? Is this normal? And that just like when you know SEC doesn't say you know, doesn't tell a board what's a materially significant risk, like they leave it up to the board to figure it out based on the guidelines and the existing law. Is that how we should see this or is this somehow unique? Well, I would say, so in the world that I inhabit day in, day out, again, uh, Maury referenced sanctions a little while ago, you know, our friends at OFAC are fond of, you know, not pinning themselves down more than they absolutely have to when they give public guidance, right? And there's a a sort of term of art or an approach that is known as maintaining strategic ambiguity in the way that you dole out guidance. And I would say that SEC has done the same thing here to my eyes, because they're not going to be able to provide an exhaustive list, right? They're not going to be able to say, well, these are the 50 different tokens or, you know, you know, assets that we regard as securities, then everybody will say, well, then if it's not one of those, then it's fine. And that's, they never want to do that. And so I do think that is part of this is that is the case, but that being the case, that is sort of the norm is that you were faced with having to navigate that, negotiate that all the time. So I don't think that's terribly noteworthy here from, you know, from where I sit. I'd like to add though, that they've actually been amazingly clear over the years that the Howey test applies, and the Howey test has been applied against emu farms and all sorts of things, that it's not really regulatory ambiguity on the SEC's part. It's that they had, for a long time, deprioritized enforcement. And so as soon as they start to prioritize enforcement, you have all these people screaming, you weren't given clearance. And the SEC points to the Dow report from back in the early days of Ethereum going, see, these things are all securities and you're just been pretending the whole time that we actually haven't been telling you that these things are unregistered securities. Right. And I would say that to that point, lack of enforcement or discretionary non-enforcement is not necessarily a reason to justify violations or non-compliance with the rules. Right. So that and which is what they would say, I think, and what any federal regulator in the U.S. would say, essentially. So that's, I think, where we find ourselves. So it'll be interesting to see how this one plays out. It'll be interesting to see to Nick's point whether there are now very similar cases being brought against other players in the coming months, which I suspect there may be. So stay tuned for that. Sticking with crypto regulatory action, let's move back over to the EU. And Maury, an article in Bloomberg last week, and I saw this report in some other places that you know the EU is, is sort of finally ready to get in place and to approve their first regulations in this space. So what's the latest on that? And what do you see coming from that? Well, this is the Markets in Crypto Assets Regulation called MICA, and it's taken a bit of time, but I think less than a year kind of to go through the EU legislative process, which is really quick. And it's not broad regulation of crypto, but it's significant, and its main thrust is record keeping. So crypto asset service providers, which is defined in the regulation, but would apply to all the big guys and many smaller ones as well, have to keep records of all their crypto transactions. And this is really significant and includes transactions with private wallets that are over a thousand euros. So peer-to-peer wallet-to-wallet transactions aren't covered, but it's a significant obligation. It's going to come into force in 18 months. There's also some rules on supervision of crypto asset service providers and consumer protection. So like Nick says, this is an activity that needs to be regulated and The U.S. is using traditional securities regulation mainly so far. The EU is being more regulatory, as it often is, and we're going to see more of this. 
What would you say to that? I saw noted in the article, and I know this has been a criticism that I've seen levied against the EU kind of regulatory regime, at least as it exists now, or it's about to be kind of stood up, that it's already essentially outdated and there's too many gaps and this is not going to go quite far enough. But what's your sort of thoughts or response on that as what we were about to get versus what would be perhaps the, you know, the optimal state? Well, I don't know. Do we ever reach an optimal state? I mean, the EU is very regulatory and crypto is complicated. And there's a lot of fraudsters there who will try to get around whatever regulation there is. I don't quite agree with Nick that it's only for crime. I think there are some interesting applications of stablecoin and blockchain for authentication and things like that. But but I think it's a step in the right in a good regulatory direction. And so I'm sure it will be outdated in some respects, but the regulators can never keep up. Yeah, fair. Let's move on to, we're going to tack back to China for a moment. As I'm always fond of saying, there's always a China portion of the program, at least when I guest host. And we're going to talk about undersea cables and Taiwan and the Matsu Islands. And frankly, this is, this, there was a, so an interesting piece that appeared maybe a little over a week ago in The Diplomat that was actually written by somebody who lives on island, on Matsu Islands. And for those who haven't been tracking this, this is a fascinating one. And this deals with undersea cables and in internet connectivity and telecommunications resiliency in Taiwan. And essentially the shorthand version is in early February, some Chinese fishing vessels came along and severed the connections that provide internet access to the Matsu Islands, which is a small island 20K off the coast of mainland China that is, of course, part of Taiwan. And they were literally existing there with no internet for close to two months as a result of this. And, you know, it, I think, brings into focus some just fascinating, and frankly, I, I just don't think this is something that's gotten enough attention, which is, you know, whether this is sort of a dry run for the Chinese to figure out how they're going to make Taiwan go dark in the on the even of, of an invasion someday. And it's also a fascinating statistic that I saw in, a, in an article from right after this happened, that this happens regularly with respect to the Matsu Islands, that these their comms are being severed by these fishing vessels. And for anybody who knows about undersea cables, it's not hard to know where they are. They're very clearly mapped out and everybody can, you know, find out where they are, which is, you know, obviously a good and a bad thing from a sort of defense standpoint. But let me maybe start with you, Maury, about what your reactions are to, to this whole to this most recent story and the account that was provided in The Diplomat and also what this foretells going forward. Well, I think it's fairly obvious that it's Chinese provocation. These Matsu Islands had two cables. As you say, it's not too hard to avoid these things, and they're done in a way that they're relatively safe unless something is dragged across them. And they were severed on the 2nd and 8th of February. That's pretty close together. Why we didn't hear more about it, frankly, I wasn't even aware about this until the article that came out. I think it's that China is interested in provocation and Taiwan is interested in the opposite. China wants to provoke. And if anything happens with Taiwan, China makes a, a meal out of it with its nationalists. I mean, when Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan, it was as if you know, it was seen as a horrible abuse of Chinese sovereignty compared to cutting off internet connection to, I, I don't know, I, I assume tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands or millions of people. And so... Oh, I doubt it's millions on the Matsu Islands. I think it's actually. I think it's pretty small, yeah, but it's still pretty brazen, yeah. But but I think Taiwan doesn't want to make a Taiwan has no interest in escalating this conflict, and that's why we haven't heard more about it. Yeah. Also, I'd actually like to add that cable cuts like this do happen on accident, cohesively, and so like there was a case in Egypt, I believe, a few years back, and like. We've had cases in Huntington Beach where a freighter in a storm actually broke a pipeline that was encased in a foot of concrete. So never underestimate the damage that anchors can do just under the normal course of affairs. This is of real concern because it could translate to an actual attack, but we have really nothing apart from minor coincidence that this happened to two cables at the same time, given 
these things are actually remarkably easy to damage. Well, I'm with Maury that I think this is purposeful provocation. This is not an accident. Yeah, <laughs> that, no way. It, they, it does happen. I think easy to damage isn't true. I mean, it happens a lot. You're right, Nick. And you're right, we don't have proof. And I don't think you can have proof. I mean, it's a fishing vessel dragging something across the cable. Who's going to prove whether it was intentional? We won't be able to do but so. But of more concern... Circumstantial evidence at Occam's Razor, I would say, suggests that it was provocation. Well, I'm a network person. I truly hate backhoes. They are the most vile creatures to ever roam the earth. And squirrels. And the submarine cable equivalent <laughs> is the ship anchor. So the real message that Taiwan is taking is they do need to be prepared in case of conflict for all the cables to be cut. Because that, as long as once things heat up, you don't care about deniability, and it is very easy to do. Yeah, to reinforce both. I mean, these cable cuts happen something like twice a week. You've got some kind of cable cut. When I was at Hong Kong for Goldman Sachs, there's a, a undersea earthquake between Taiwan and the Philippines that took down 19 of the 20 cable systems. So basically, if you're on the west side of that cut, you were not able to talk to pretty much anybody on the east side of that cut. So it was a really substantial impact. That was on Boxing Day 2006. And at that point, and I think still, but I'm not had difficulty finding the research on this, a fair number of the, res of the cable repair ships um, were Chinese-owned. Now, since then, Congress passed something like, I think, $10 million a year so that the U.S. Merchant Marine maintains two cable repair ships, one in the Atlantic and one in the Pacific. But that's only one. It's a very time-intensive process because you have to send a remotely operated sub off the side that has to try and find these things. Back in 2006, for the cut I was in, they, had to, they were still using a grappling hook. Like you didn't have enough submarines, so you'd throw a damn grappling hook and fish around until you found each side and put them together. Yeah, I would just to sort of come to sort of wrap up all these points, I think a couple things. To Nick's point, absolutely, if regardless of intent here, it's a it's clear wake up call to Taiwan if they weren't already focused on this that they have to have some backup plans and there's talk of you know whether it's a satellite based system or it's some better access to the repair ships or or something else you know th these are things that have to be prioritized because uh, again w the day may come where nobody's trying to hide what this is and what it's for and they need to be prepared for that the other is the diplomat piece used this term and I've seen it used elsewhere this idea of creating an invisible blockade no around confidence. the island by cutting the cables, which I think is a, it's an elegant and also horrifying kind of thought and concept that this is kind of what we could be in store for if there really is going to be an invasion or a conflict with respect to Taiwan. And so just a term to keep in mind, to have ringing in your brain, you know, going forward, that this is a very real concern. Also, I think to the point Maury raised about the sort of U.S. visit and the U.S., you know, what's perceived to be a U.S. provocation. What does the U.S. do about this, if anything, to perhaps quietly aid the Taiwan cause to figure out how to better be, you know, ready for this in the future. What do they do? How can they do it in a way that's perhaps not going to be a learning to China? How is that being gamed out? How is that going to play out? I think those are all fascinating questions and ones we don't have answers to at the moment, but keep eyes on this because this, this is a big one in the grand scheme of things. Go ahead, Jay. Yeah, there's some fascinating legal history on this, quasi-legal history. When the British Empire, 1870s, was first building these undersea cable networks, they knew like, they had this far-flung empire and they knew that they were vulnerable. So they came out with, of course, cables themselves should be neutral objects, and they should these should not be targets during war because they're there to help mankind communicate, and these should be sacrosanct until they had a sufficiently dense network. Like, and they were mapping out to how many different colonies did they have redundant network connections in for submarine cables. And once they were sufficiently dense, somewhere around the turn of the century, 1900, they said, of course, these are just an infrastructure target like anything else. They shouldn't have any kind of protected status because they knew that they had the advantage. And of course, World War I comes, they cut the German cables, they captured the Zimmerman telegram, and that helps bring the United States into the war. So fascinating quasi-legal history here. Yeah, law of war rules and norms are there to keep everybody playing fair until it suits you 
otherwise, right? That's, I think, the lesson there. So let's turn to our final story in the news roundup here, which is an interesting one and is a bit of a departure from what we've been talking about today. New York Times article last week about the Mexican government and their love affair with Pegasus spyware. Welcome to This Week in Ransomware A-Holes. So Pegasus has largely been the biggest player when it comes to supporting skeevy uses. And this is why the uh, executive order saying don't use this stuff for law enforcement is very important is because we have yet another case where this showed up. So the Mexican presumably army has been targeting human rights lawyers and others concerning Mexico's previous dirty war history and disappearances. And when you get on Citizen Lab radar, you end up uh, spoiling operations. So Citizen Lab found out from some of the victims, did a extensive victimology on who and likely why they were being targeted, were able to unpack significant parts of the exploits, which among other things led Apple to being able to notice victims. And so there was some, at least some notice of victims, which could easily have been outside just the Mexican context. We don't know. And the other thing is at least one of the entry points that was used was stopped by Apple's advanced protection. So if you're paranoid with an iPhone, turn on advanced protection. It turns out to work operationally. Yeah, that last point's a good one. And that caught my eye at the end of this article as well. Fascinating story and certainly an unsettling one. Interesting also just the, for anybody who hasn't read that one, I would, again, it was in the New York Times last week, and I would encourage you also some great reporting on kind of the early days about how the Mexican government and NSO got put together and sort of how those negotiations went and what what led to the, you know, the purchase of, of the the spyware in the first place down in Mexico. So I encourage anybody who's interested to read that. Okay, that brings us to the end of the news roundup for this episode. We are heading down the home stretch with a few quick hits, and we will start with one that is fascinating kind of thought experiment slash horrifying real world scenario to consider, which is whether or not the president could ever invoke the Insurrection Act to use military cyber capabilities against U.S. citizens. And to that, I will throw it to Jay. Yeah, thanks. I'd written a piece on this that came out in Defense One about two years ago. Um, right, We'd just come out of the president at that time threatening to bring the airborne troops onto the streets of D.C. And it made me think, all right, well, there might be limitations about ordering NSA to monitor the communications of insurrectionist protesters, but that might not apply to Title 50 about using the military. Right? I mean, what would be worse about ordering Cyber Command to target insurrectionists than it is to have airborne troopers doing it? So I do think it is time to look at the Insurrection Act and look at reform. The January 6th committee had some ideas for that, and I think it's definitely time to reopen that conversation. I'm sure that re- revising the Insurrection Act will be at the top of the list of you know bipartisan reforms that'll be pushed through in this Congress. Uh, a, a, wor- a worthy goal, for sure, but uh, yeah. I mean, on the Republican side, you know, they wouldn't want a U.S. president to be bringing out the military to go after guns. I mean, look at what happened in Texas and Jade Helm, right? So just like the liberals wouldn't want, you know, some future Trump or Trump-like presidency to go after the other side. So I know it's not going to be at the top, but it should be some side that both sides could say we don't want. We would like some restrictions on sole presidential authority to do that without backing of Congress or other parts of the executive branch, especially the Attorney General and Secretary of Defense. Fair. Just finding the overlap in the Venn diagram when both sides are coming at the problem for extraordinarily different reasons is always is always challenging. With that, let's move on to the next item, which is an interesting article from Vice about computer-generated swatting services. And with that, I will turn it to Nick. So this is specifically about an unknown perpetrator calling himself Tor Swats on Telegram, who is offering swatting as a service. For 75 bucks. you can get out of taking your final because he'll call in a bomb threat <laughs> to your high school 
and he's clearly using these automatic voice generators because he's able to be responsive with at least a little bit of latency. He's probably using some voice over IP system through Tor or something like that, thus the name, but he's reachable through Telegram, and he's currently supposedly laying off for a little bit. But this is just the problem of swatting is endemic now, and that it's such a cheap service says just how dangerous an attack this is. Yeah, and the sort of stepping back, we'll see how long that lasts. Clearly, I think some of the attention has perhaps made this actor a bit nervous, but we'll see how long that holds. Next, I'm going to actually bring up a story from last week, which is the argument in the Supreme Court in Counterman versus Colorado, which for those who weren't following, was the issue of when a an online threat is a quote-unquote true threat that would not be protected by the First Amendment. And this stems from a case in Colorado where there was some cyber stalking, online stalking, and the defendant was sentenced to over four years in prison as a result, being convicted under this, the stalking statute. Some fascinating issues that are presented by this, which you know I'm sure we'll come back to when this gets decided, which I would expect would be you know early this summer. But essentially, what is the proper standard to be reviewing what is and is not a true threat under the First Amendment? an objective standard, a recklessness standard, something else. The justices don't really seem to be very well aligned on what the proper test is there. There's also the issue of this is, you know, this was a stalking case. It wasn't really a speech case. And yet it's kind of been contorted into a speech case now. And at least some experts think, you know, bad cases or tough cases make bad law. And so the idea that this has now been contorted into a speech case and they're going to consider whether how the kind of the truth threat doctrine is going to play out in this context in this type of case is a little troubling. So we will see there, but a fascinating one for anybody who hasn't been following that was covered pretty broadly last week, including an article in Fast Company that we would point you to in the blog post early last week. So that's one to keep an eye on. And then finally, in our last news item of the week, as I said, we're saving in Nick's view, the best for last, which is the article about Mr. Musk and his displeasure at some actions that Microsoft has taken with regard to Twitter. So, Nick, I will turn it to you for that. It's been a great day for Pony Stark and a great week as he blew up a huge amount of his assets. And not just talking about the rocket pad where he insisted that flame diverters cost too much money. The problem is, from the advertiser viewpoint, Twitter is becoming the Nazi bar. That if you have a bar... And the kind guy who happens to be a neo-Nazi comes in. you got to kick him out right away or else you end up becoming the Nazi bar. And Twitter, Elon seems happy with that. The problem is advertisers are not. And so as part of the advertiser flight, Microsoft has tools for advertisers to better spend their money across multiple platforms, basically acting as a sales intermediary, and they pulled Twitter from it because nobody wants to advertise at the Nazi bar. And, well, Elon Musk threw a hissy fit. He says he's going to sue Microsoft for some unrelated thing that Microsoft was scraping or abusing the API or whatever when they were running the service. All I have to say is that's just Tony Stark blustering and let him get back to blowing up rockets. And with that, as I promised, saving the best for last, that's all we have for this week's episode. Thank you to Jay, Nick, and Maury for joining us. For our listeners, send your questions as always, comments and feedback to cyberlawpodcast at septo.com or leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content and we will read it on the air as long as it's entertaining. This has been episode 454 of the Cyber Law Podcast. Welcome to This Week in Ransomware A-Holes.